This is Top Floor, episode 78. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 78. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. Welcome to the show. Joanna Jagger started her career on the path to becoming a chef. But after one too many nights of watching servers count their stacks of cash after 12 hours and a dirty apron, she switched teams. Joanna was a server, bartender, and catering manager before deciding that training and leadership development were her true calling. A couple of degrees in human resources and leadership later, she moved into the hotel side of hospitality as an HR leader. Joanna is now an instructor at Capilano University's School of Tourism Management and founder of Worth, a British Columbia-based organization that, in their words, invites women to take their seat at the table, whether it be the prep table, bar counter, reservation desk, or boardroom. Today, Joanna and I are going to talk about the fact that we are long lost sisters, among other things. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Casey. Here is what Casey has to say. If I go talk to HR for help figuring out a problem with my boss, can I trust that it will be confidential? I get that vibe from my HR manager, but my friends say, do not trust them. All right, Joanna, this is putting you on this spot a little bit, but what do you think is as a conversation with human resources expected to be confidential for an employee? This is a tough one. It depends on the context of the organization. What we have to keep in mind is HR does work for the employer. So I often say that HR can be 49% for the people, 51% for the business. So in that conversation, if you say anything that is really problematic or the HR professional needs to disclose, you can't trust that that information is going to stay there. So I would think about if this conversation about with your boss needs to be addressed with HR because you want some kind of remedy and you want it fixed, or if it's a conversation better to have directly one-to-one with your boss themselves to address the problem. What are some of the kinds of things that would require reporting? Like what is something that could come up in this kind of conversation that no matter what the HR manager could not keep confidential? Any form of harassment. So if anything was problematic around bullying, harassment, sexual harassment, that HR professional has a duty to report that, investigate it. And it could be a whole host of obligations related to the policies of the organization. So there is a duty of care to the people, absolutely. But for liability and legal protection, that HR manager has a duty to disclose. And they should be telling you that in that meeting and not falling into the trap of gossiping or reporting out because that's something they think that they 
spot to share. It's if they need to share it. Understood. That makes a lot of sense. And obviously for our listeners, your mileage may vary based on the country or state where you live and what those laws are. So Joanna, you and I have a lot in common. As I mentioned, we're almost long lost sisters. One of the weirder things is that we both used to be oyster shuckers. I was terrible at it and I got kicked out of that job very quickly, but you were a champion ultimately participating in the national competition. How did that happen? You're right. We do have a lot in common. I feel like I'm your Canadian counterpart. (laughs) So the oyster shucking was meant to be a summer job and I was in university and I was doing that transition from wanting so badly to be in the front of house. And I got this opportunity with my background in in working in seafood restaurants that I could be an oyster shucker, get the chance to serve customers, um, but also behind the oyster bar. And I was opening 2,000, 3,000 oysters a night I became very quick at it. And so the company I was with decided that I ought to... 3,000? I had to do like three dozen and I could barely make it happen. Sorry to interrupt you. No, this was a a big, booming seafood and chop house and a real destination for oysters. So I became quite quick at it over the course of the summer. And they decided to send me to the national championships in Prince Edward Island. This was the Super Bowl of oyster shucking. (laughs) Everybody there was uh, born and bred to be an oyster shucker. And I was this young woman from Vancouver competing. I can tell you, I came in dead last of 20 (laughs) participants, but still consider myself the fastest female in the West. So I don't know if that title has been challenged to date. That's amazing. I love that story so much. We also both worked in off-premise catering before starting our hotel careers. Can you think of one of the most memorable events that you catered? So from the oyster shucking, I saw this opportunity to start a catering division of the restaurant I worked at. And over the course of a few months, we were mainly just going out and doing oyster shucking events, a few barbecues here and there. And then one client came knocking at our door and it was the Ritz Carlton. Vancouver was about to get a Ritz Carlton property. They had the site planned out and they decided on this big launch. And for whatever reason, they decided to approach this brand new catering division with this 20 something year old director and say, would you cater our launch? So the only food served there uh, was the highest end uh, items. The only drink served was Moe Chandon. This was like the fanciest party. So a huge learning opportunity. And Diana Krall sat at the piano and played music. Oh got my so, gosh. It was so fancy, but she got so rattled by the hundreds and hundreds of people that packed that room that after two or three songs, she said, no, nope, I'm out of here. I'm not playing for this crowd. So You're I was kidding. the most memorable. Oh my goodness. That is insane. I wonder, did she just like flounce off? I think she was thinking to herself, what have I gotten myself into? And <laughs> here we are trying to pull this off. Like we knew what we were doing. Uh, just they, you know, it was the place to be at the time. It was a packed room. Uh, but really great learning for me when I was trying to launch this catering arm. That is amazing. After many years in food and beverage, you decided to make the switch to leadership and human resources. What motivated that change and what did you do to make the change? I was working in a fabulous environment where 
it was just an enormous learning and leadership, just like I mentioned with catering and given this opportunity to grow and develop. And I saw this real opportunity to affect that kind of change in organizations through people, through performance, through development. And I was really fascinated by the world of HR. So I went to school in the evenings when I wasn't working as the sales and catering manager and started pursuing a path in human resources. And I really saw an opportunity for the industry to focus more on human resources, especially in the restaurant world. And then I transitioned into the hotel environment because at the time, way back when, not every organization had HR in a real uh, leadership capacity. It might have been off the side of the desk or might not have had it at all. But I, I think that's changing a lot. Organizations are seeing the need for progressive human resources practices. But it did take some time to kind of carve my niche in the industry itself. So I was lucky to get a few positions in the restaurant world in human resources before moving into the hotel world with Marriott. Yes, definitely no restaurant I ever worked in had anything approaching personnel, HR, anything like that. It was like, clock in, do 478 hours worth of side work for free and then go home. (laughs) That's so true. You founded Worth, which is Women of Recreation, Tourism, and Hospitality very soon after leaving the hotel world to teach at Capilano University School of Tourism Management. Are those two changes related or were they coincidental? I left hotels when I started a family. So I was pregnant working in hotels and I soon felt that maybe this wasn't the environment I saw myself in as a mom. And the reason being that the hours were very inflexible, the expectations very demanding, and the culture itself, even when I announced my pregnancy, there was not a lot of excitement. I was very excited. My employer was not. So at the time, I decided when in Canada, we have very generous maternity leaves. You take a a full year if you like. And so I took that year to pursue a, a master's degree in leadership. And as I was studying the master's, I thought, if I earn this master's, I can go into the university context and teach. But while studying the master's, I started to really do a deep dive into the idea of women and leadership. And I started searching for a network or an organization that I could connect my leadership ambitions in the hospitality industry to find some network that could encourage me uh, on a path that propelled my ambition. I found nothing. (laughs) So it really was accidental. But I decided to host an event uh, while on maternity leave with all the women I admire and respect and put them on a panel and start addressing some of the issues that and barriers that women face in the industry. And from that event, we started to get a lot of attention. Women were saying in the 30, 40 years I've worked in the industry, they've never had this forum to talk about some of the more you know, maybe topics that we know about but aren't discussing, like sexual harassment, like um, imposter syndrome, like things that about holding women back, whether it's self-imposed barriers or systemic barriers. And so uh, I was able to work with CAPU uh, with my students and see how many young women, even in their early days of wanting a tourism education, maybe hold themselves back. They might say, oh, my dream job is to be a coordinator or a supervisor, where a lot of the boys and men in my class will say, I want to be the general manager. I want to be the CEO. 
So I really saw this balance between both worth and capu as my purpose to accelerate and advance women to think bigger and to get access to those leadership roles and develop their careers. It's interesting as you were talking about not finding the network that you were looking for. It reminds me of some of the entrepreneurs of tech startups that I've interviewed who say that they started their business or created their app or whatever the case may be because they were solving a problem they had personally. There is a profound lesson there, I guess, not just in entrepreneurship, but also in creating nonprofits and, you know, professional networks. Very interesting. What kinds of things do you think led to founding worth outside of your experience at the university? Like, was there a specific incident in your business or personal life that you think made you seek out this network? Or was it a culmination of multiple things over time? Oh, gosh, I don't think any woman, any woman I know gets through their career in this industry without some incident, some situation that doesn't feel right. And the challenge with the industry is that a lot of those incidents and those icky feelings, we ignore. We just laugh off or we pretend that this is not an issue. This is the way it is. This is the way the business is. And so for me, absolutely, all through my career, there were incidents that I thought, Mm, this isn't right, but I've got to kind of laugh this off. Or I don't want to be this disruptor. I don't want my management to be mad at me for calling out this practice or this behavior. And so for me, it wasn't necessarily a culmination of, well, maybe it was a culmination of things, but what happened while sitting in the HR seat is I saw a lot of women resign and women were leaving the industry at their mid-career point. So women that had maybe hit their 30s, were saying, okay, I'm done here. Thank you very much. I'm going to go work in a different sector. And I thought, what is happening in our industry where we work with, with and develop the 15 to 24-year-olds, the majority of our industry? We have more women in the industry at that age, and then we let them go. And so I thought, this is why we need an association for women to focus on their career advancement and offer the resources so they see those opportunities, but also address the systemic barriers that exist in organizations that hold women back. So what are some of the things that Worth does? Our mission is to educate, elevate, empower, and also advocate on behalf of women in the industry. So we offer mentorship programs, a number of resources and free events like webinars to teach skills like negotiating your salary or combating a burnout, or what imposter syndrome looks like. We build regional events for networking, bringing together panels of women who are at the peak of their career to share their lessons and learning. We do a number of different things um, related to advocacy as well. So ensuring that women of color are given opportunities we do a number of things also to advocate on behalf of women. So working with our government here in British Columbia to look at pay transparency, pay equity, having conversations about advocating for racialized women, Black, Indigenous women of color, making sure that organizations are seeing the need to develop women on their teams through metrics and measurements to advance uh, women in management roles. 
Can you talk a little bit about the seat at the table study that you conducted? I love the name of that. What were some of your findings? Yeah, so we definitely brought women to the table. We hosted a fantastic event where we invited industry leaders to have conversations, tough conversations about the industry. I used to think that worth was about developing women in leadership. At one point through COVID-19, I thought this is now about retaining women in our industry. And so we brought women to uh, join us for focus groups in partnership with the university. I had student researchers with me. And we spent the day talking about some of the most challenging issues uh, impacting women in our industry. And the findings came out that the top findings and takeaways were that the industry needs more transparency. So women are seeking transparency on things like their learning and development path, the benefits they have, policies, career paths, and definitely pay. That was a big theme. The other takeaway was that our industry is lacking in inclusion leaders. So champions for any kind of conversation around uh, race, gender, and supporting women to have this employee resource group where these issues can be spoken about. We just always hide it away. And every year at International Women's Day, we parade women into the lobby or the restaurant. We take the picture. We serve a cupcake. But we're not actually addressing why (laughs) there are not enough women in leadership roles. We have a greater pool to choose from. We have more women in the industry, uh, predominantly in most sectors, and yet we don't have women sitting at the top. So seat in the table is really designed to have that conversation. And we also determine that flexibility is a key topic right now. Now, this is not just saying work from home. We know that's not possible for the industry, but this is flexibility on benefits, on learning development options, scheduling. We're just really stuck in our ways sometimes. And the industry needs to catch up to other sectors and employers to be a little more progressive on employment practices. And so we're advocating for um, employers to take our gender equity audit. This is a 65-point measurement that is found on our website, worthassociation.com, where Uh, a leader or even uh, an individual contributor at an organization can take the audit to say, how are we doing here out of 65 points? Are we doing the things that we should be doing to support women? So an example of that could be even training related to equity, diversity, inclusion. Is that happening in your organization? Do you have harassment policies? Um, Do you have balance and flexibility related to personal days? So those audit measurements take... um, center stage for organizations to do one or two things to advance women. I'll definitely link to that assessment in our show notes. And I seriously could ask you probably a 500 follow-up questions about this alone. But I do want to ask one, which is when you said said, uh, something about inclusion leadership or an inclusion leader within an organization... Do you feel like that is something that needs to be formally designated or was the the feedback that you were getting from the folks you were talking to more that they just weren't seeing that type of leadership anywhere from anyone? I'm not sure if that question was clear. What we're seeing, women are saying, we want to have conversations, not just on International Women's Day, we want to have conversations about barriers about barriers, whatever that looks like, to advancing our own leadership ambitions. So this could be an employee resource group designed and developed by women 
and within the organization to identify opportunities with them. And that could be a mentorship program. It could be evaluating hiring practices. It could be even saying, hey, are our leaders evaluated on metrics related to having women on the team? Uh, Accor, Marriott, they do this quite well. They advertise their goals related to how many women they want to see as general managers. And that's public information within the company. But a lot of organizations, maybe because they're a smaller business or they just haven't thought this way for a long time, aren't actually addressing the need right now to advance women. We are losing women at a very rapid rate uh, based on that mid-career time or COVID-19 propelled this challenge for women to identify, this isn't the sector for me anymore. I lost my job in COVID and I'm not going to return. And so we're identifying an opportunity there. It's interesting that the companies you mentioned have, or at least had women in the C-suite. I wonder if those things are related. What a mystery. So (laughs) Julia Borstein, who wrote the book, When Women Lead, refers to the COVID-19 pandemic as a she session because it impacted women so much more dramatically than it did men, at least in the US. For example, women lost 1 million more jobs And we all know I'm a little hyperbolic, but that's a literal 1 million more jobs than men in the United States. Based on your work, what do you think needs to happen for the hospitality industry to reverse course on this? Is it those three main topics that you brought up or is there something else that needs to happen before we can even get to those? Women were the hardest hit of the hardest hit in our industry. So women of recreation, tourism, and hospitality lost the most jobs in COVID-19. And what I'm seeing is there's a lot of conversation around the labor shortage in tourism right now. And there's a lot of industries and governments and um, task forces assembled to speak about this, about what do we do about the labor shortage? And very few are speaking about where women sit in the labor shortage. And so what organizations and industries need to do is look at a multi-level approach integrating a lot of different ideas because this is very much a crisis. Tourism cannot operate at its full capacity without people. And if you're losing a significant population of your workforce, um, you need to address that. And so we not only need organizations to take a, a seat at the table and having dialogue about uh, why women are exiting, we need um, government to address this too. And we need funding for organizations like Worth and others who are doing this work to do the research and have the conversations about um, moving the dial for gender equity. Shifting gears a little bit, as a hospitality professor, what do you think the role of academia is in the industry? I'll tell you why I'm asking this question. It feels like a hospitality diploma in Canada is taken much more seriously than it is in the United States. In fact, I can tell you scores of hotel leaders who would prefer not to hire someone who went to hospitality school or culinary school or some formal training like that. I think it has to do with the fact that so many people in our business, quote, fall into it and 
figure it out and just work their way up. So they are a little threatened by the diploma situation. I may be wrong about that, but what do you think? That is such an interesting perspective. You know, I look at if I were to do it all over again, I would absolutely go to a tourism uh, institute, a hospitality diploma. This is so much fun for young people to do their education in this stream. Most of these programs are business education. You know, this is not fluffy knowledge that students are learning. They're leaving this program with a foundation of business, but a real sense of the industry needs and the industry operations. Students at Capilano University do a work integrated learning placement, and most institutions do that, where you get to get co-op credits and go work in the field and see what it's like. And our graduates are so ready to take on supervision roles and to grow their careers. I think that there's a challenge with getting parents to see the value of these programs and um, students themselves to see that when they leave after two years or four years, the skill set that they're taking is very specialized, but also broad in the sense that they get that foundation of business knowledge. I think that we also need to be looking at micro-credentials or flexible learning for people who did fall into the industry and maybe have unfinished business with school. And there's nothing wrong with changing course or finding your way back into post-secondary. Maybe you didn't get that finance education and you really want to grow that capacity and business acumen. Well, we should have an opportunity for you to do that without it being a, a barrier. You should be able to work and learn at the same time. I love Two things you just said, I so I want to repeat them. Micro-credentials. And I assume what you mean by that are certifications. Like everyone has the CH LMNOP after their <laughs> uh, name on LinkedIn. Um, and then the idea of unfinished business with schooling. I was talking to someone earlier today who was talking about how they have a little bit of a chip on their shoulder about not having completed a bachelor's degree. And that is a perfect way to describe it. Unfinished business with secondary education. I love that. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we are back, Joanna is going to describe how the sticky floor is just as bad as the glass ceiling and also explain how to shuck an oyster. Be right back. Top Floor is sponsored in part by the Hunter Hotel Investment Conference, taking place March 21st through 23rd at the Atlanta Marriott Marquis. Hunter brings together the hotel industry's most influential leaders and investors for networking opportunities and insightful sessions on hospitality trends. Deals are built on meaningful relationships, and Hunter is where these relationships are made and deals get done. For more information, visit hunterconference.com. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with a few specific practical tips that they can try either in their businesses or their personal lives. So, What do you think, Joanna, are a couple of specific things hotels and restaurants can do to make sure that women are treated fairly and equally as employees? We have a harassment problem in the industry at levels way greater than most others. We know from studies that women are harassed equally from management, uh, from colleagues, and customers. 
So we need to have really strong policies and practices, investigations, and have the courage to evict your guest, uh, evict your customer when those situations take place. Because that can be a, a real marker for women to say, oh, this is not for me, this industry, I don't want to be treated like this. So that needs to change. We also have to give better supports and training, professional development, and support women on that career path. Show them opportunities within the industry that they can have a family, they can take a break and travel, or they can go traveling with their career. So not feeling like this is an entry-level profession and showing these opportunities. Um, it is such a fun industry, and we forget this. We forget to show people how much fun they can have and what enormous opportunities exist. I think there's something also to the idea that the jobs that people who are in, say, hotel school today are going to be doing when they're our age don't exist yet. And so if you don't stick it out, if you don't work your way through, up, down, and around in our industry, you're not going to be there to discover things like being a podcast host or whatever <laughs> that don't exist when you first start out. All right. We're going to stop talking business and get down to what's really important. What is the key to shucking the perfect oyster? So that's the key in itself. You have to think about it like the oyster shucking tool is a key and this is a very stubborn lock. So you kind of want a bit of a wiggle, snap off that lid and a clean presentation. So that's how you lose points on the competition. <laughs> you can't have any shell fragments. Uh, you want to make sure you even flip that oyster, um, put it on a little bit of lemon. That's the secret. Do you eat oysters? Not as many as I used to, but definitely. Still Man, love them. I love them, but I am allergic to them now. So every time oh. I start, I remember them fondly, but I can't have them anymore. Oh, that's heartbreaking. I know. We've reached the fortune telling portion of our show. So I'm going to ask you to do a little predicting and magic wand waving. What is a prediction you have about the future of hospitality education? I think we should expect more government intervention and funding related to integrating tourism education in our curriculums, even at the high school level. The economic driver of tourism for uh, North America is so enormous. And if we don't have enough people leaving high school or post-secondary without education, um, we will not be able to service the, the boom that we're seeing in travel and tourism. So I can see that as being an opportunity, just like any other industry, when there's a labor crisis, you see interventions and funding. That's my hope. Oh, that's a good prediction. I hope you're right. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about the restaurant business, what would it be? So our industry, like many others, we have a problem with that glass ceiling and that exists and we know it to exist. But what we don't talk about enough is the sticky floor. So a lot of women come into the industry and stay in roles that are very entry level, or we have occupational um, gender segregation where we see all women in one area, like a host, or we see all men behind the bar. And so what I'm hoping to see, or what I would love to see with our magic wand, is that we eliminate that, we make the restaurant industry a lot more flexible and cross-training to get people a taste of all those different positions. And we have balanced representation in leadership. I go into restaurants and if I see 
women running around in high heels and doing all the serving jobs and then men carrying the clipboards and walking around with their ties leading the place. It drives me bananas. I really think we should be tapping women on the shoulder when we need to to show them the path to taking on that first supervision shift or role where they get that experience. And I think that's going to be a big game changer for this sector as this labor shortage is an opportunity for us to give people that development in different roles. I love that. All right. What is next for you and what is next for Worth? I have big plans for Worth. So (laughs) really want to grow this organization so that all women in the industry can access it. That would be through leadership courses online. I want to have a conference one day. I want to invite all of you to Vancouver to hang out with us and talk about some of these issues. And I just want to make sure that we keep adding women to our membership, which is free, so that women have the resources and tools they need. I built this organization because it's what I needed when I was 19. And so at wherever you're at in your leadership journey, I want women to have a community they can rely on to show them the opportunities and how we can support them getting out of their own way, but also um, removing the barriers that exist to advancing them in leadership. We've got to change those statistics. We've got to have more women running these organizations because like we know, uh, diversity in organizations make them more profitable, make them more engaging for employees. So it's a no-brainer for me. Okay, folks, before we tell Joanna goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Joanna, because you are my sister from another mister, I have no doubt that you have spent some time on the loading dock dishing the dirt. What is a story you would only tell on the loading dock? Oh, goodness. My best story is when I was very young, I was responsible for all the sales of a restaurant, all the group bookings and coordinating the events. And one January, I booked a party for Mike's birthday. I think Mike was turning 26 years old and I had about 60 people on the book. I was so proud of myself. They were ordering really expensive set menus. Well, Mike turned out to be a gangster and brought 60 of his gangster buddies all in their leather and their colors. And this was a high-end restaurant, and I had no clue that I was bringing in a gangster. And we actually had in the restaurant at the same time, not only did we have a reporter from the local paper, we also had um, uh, a kind of like a governor (laughs) for the Canadian context of one. So we had these people in the room. So imagine... The police were called. We have a gang squad unit. The Caesar salads weren't even served before they were ushering all of these gangsters out of the restaurant, set up a roadblock. Um, And now I'm proud to say there is something called Restaurant Watch, which is like a gang squad (laughs) police protection for restaurants. Thanks to my booking that January for Mike's birthday party. Oh, my goodness. I have to ask you this. This doesn't make sense at all, but I swear to you, the last Canadian that I interviewed on this show, his story was about a gangster in his hotel. So my question for you is, 
is the mafia just like run amok in the entire country and every province? Or is it just a crazy coincidence that you guys keep running into gangsters? What's going on? Well, they're, they're not that nice. Canadians are nice, but these ones aren't. The gangs in Vancouver and Canada were once a little bit more able to do their, go out to restaurants and wear their colors and wear their leather. And now that's really changed. So to protect the public, if anybody has any identifiable gang colors or gear, um, they're asked to leave. And that's to protect the public. So as restaurants, in my first years in restaurants, we would welcome those gangsters. They spent money. You knew they <laughs> take care of them. And it's totally changed. We don't have the Hells Angels sitting on our patios anymore. And if they are, they're not able to advertise. And uh, certainly that, that restaurant watch is one of the best things that we have in our province, we have a bar watch program to keep people safe and um, making sure that the public is not in any kind of crossfire with these rival gangs. So, you know, there's never a dull moment in the restaurant and hotel world. <laughs> and you learn true. very quickly how to uh, take care of your customers unless you don't have to take care of your customer. <laughs> customer is not always right. <laughs> Joanna Jagger, thank you so much for being here. I loved hearing about Worth and your career. And I appreciate you writing up to the top floor. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 78. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 